Good morning. Today's scripture reading is Hebrews 8, 1 through... Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. Good morning, Terra Nova Church. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Dennis Gardner. I serve as one of the pastors here. Thank you, Becky. I I just, can I just say I love that our church has a time when we read the passage out loud beforehand? Because it's an obedient act, right? Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. The public reading of Scripture and this is all just aside, it's kind of essential. Like our prayer and our praise and our preaching and our sacraments are all responses to the spoken reading of the word, right? It's such a simple and such a vital piece of our Sunday morning service. And I just wanted to call attention to that. And if you're interested in being a reader for a Sunday morning, email Heidi at terranovachurch.org and we can take some steps together to see if we can make that happen, all right? So we're going to be continuing today in our sermon series in Hebrews, and the book is going to take another pivot. So if you're here and you need a Bible and you haven't already pointed your phone at that thing and you want to have a paper Bible, Ellen is there with Bibles, just lift up your hand and Ellen will bring you a Bible. And if you want to keep it, keep it. That's our gift to you. So we're on chapter 8 of Hebrews, and we're going to give a a little bit of backing up. So Hebrews is in four sections, right? So we've already 
to this point, gone over how Jesus is better than the angels and the Torah. We've talked about how Jesus is better than Moses and the promised land. We've talked about how Jesus is better than the priests and Melchizedek, and a little bit of that carries over in today. And then in the, the fourth portion, it's how Jesus is better than the covenant and the temple sacrifices. Now, the writer of Hebrews is being very thorough in making his point. And today we move into that fourth section, which makes its pivot there between verses 5 and 6. And listen, I wouldn't be out of line to admit that parts of this book of Hebrews can be really confusing to the 21st century reader. Right? Were you here last week? Anybody? Pastor Tory took a lot of prep time, and he used a lot of his allotted sermon time unpacking the mystery of Melchizedek just to get to the point to say Jesus is better than Melchizedek. You know, there was a lot there. Halfway through his prep during the week, I got a message that said, Mel is kicking my butt. <laughs> so there's a heaviness. There's a, a real heaviness for us here in the 21st century in Hebrews. And it's not a heaviness that's oppressive or has any kind of negative connotation. Hebrews has this very dense and full beauty to it. That has just been a joy for us to be able to unpack all this time. So similar to last week, uh, where we heard Pastor Tori unpack the symbolic nature of Melchizedek as a shadow of the ultimate priest king, Jesus, today we're going to see how God's covenant with Israel, as it was in the time before Christ, was also symbolic. Right? In fact, it was meant to be symbolic, even when it was first established. It was meant to be symbolic. And throughout this book series, we keep returning and coming back to these main themes of Jesus being better than anything and everything, that being our primary theme. And, and we're continually needing to be reminded of some of the contextual pieces to keep our understanding focused. But because I, I want us to keep focused because today's portion could very well have blown the minds of the people who read it when it was written. Because for nearly centuries, the covenant was it to these people. The covenant was what set the nation of Israel apart from all other peoples. And even in seasons when they were in clear disobedience to God, they still held the covenant promises really, really tight. And, and when things weren't going well for the people of Israel... They still held on to that promise, but it looked like an insolent child saying to God, but you promised! You promised X and Y and Z. So it's not surprising that, remember, many times we've said it already, the primary audience of the book of Hebrews at the time of its writing were Jewish people who were considering walking away from their new Christian faith and going back to the Old Covenant. And there's a lot of reasons for this. One, it was they might have been afraid of persecution or imprisonment. Uh, it might be because they didn't fully understand the new covenant in Jesus. Or maybe the covenant fulfillment didn't look the way that they thought it was going to. But the author assumes that his audience has a, a, a semi-intimate knowledge of the Old Testament and expects the reader to know the Mosaic covenant that he's about to compare Jesus to. So all that to say, keep in mind, to compare Jesus to the Old Covenant could have been scandalous. It could have been really hard for them to swallow. It could have been scary and made them feel unsafe because it was such a piece of their culture that they held on to. 
I had a very basic roadmap today. We're going to look at the Old Covenant history a little bit so that we can have some context. We're going to look at all the symbolism and contrasts and then simply what does it mean for us. And if you're looking for a main point, I would refer you to the sermon title. So to understand why Jesus is better than the Old Covenant, it, of course, helps to understand the Old Covenant. So some of this might be completely new to you, right? Some of this might be familiar to you. But let me just say that there's value in revisiting something that we think or assume that we already know, that we have figured out. God is bigger than that. Amen? The covenant starts with God saying to Abraham, I will. Those two words, as spoken by God, is the equivalent of a legal promise and is the most important promise that was ever made in all of time. And we see it written out in Genesis 12, verses 2 through 3. It says, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This I will can be referred to in a, in a few different ways, in a few different words. It can be the covenant, it could be the promise, it could be the contract, it could be the testament. But what it, it, what it all comes down to is God says, I, the one and only creator of the universe, God, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, will be your God, and you will be my people. And a covenant needs to be sealed. And a covenant was sealed by Abraham by his faith. Abraham believed what God said, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and the covenant was made. And you can read about that in Romans 4. But God is playing the long game here. right? We know that it wasn't fulfilled in Abraham's lifetime. But I recently heard this, this very simple statement that resonated with me. God is not in a hurry. Just let that little sentence resonate throughout our days. God is not in a hurry. So that promise that God made with Abraham moves through each of the patriarchs. It goes from Abraham to his son Isaac to his son Jacob to Joseph. God then renews the covenant with each one of them, and eventually the covenant moves to the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. They go into Egypt. God takes them out of Egypt, and the promise moves on to Moses, and it becomes the Mosaic covenant. And, and at this point, the covenant expands a little bit. See, what are the divine promises and the human conditions to this covenant, right? What does God commit himself to, and what does he require of us as covenant partner? Virtually all of Exodus chapter 19 through 34 is concerned with making of the I will covenant. And more specifically, there are five divine promises in this Mosaic covenant which reconfirms the covenant with Abraham, all right? And they're this. This is what God promises, that Israel will be God's special possession, that Israel will be a kingdom of priests to God, Israel will be a holy nation, God will fight for Israel and overcome all her enemies, and God will treat Israel with grace and mercy and forgive her sins. 
I'm just gonna let that sit for a second while I take care of my dry throat. It's still the same. It's still the same. These are the divine promises of the covenant and they all depend on certain conditions being fulfilled by God's people. Right? Exodus 19.5 says, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, then I shall and experience all of these things. Right? So with the Mosaic covenant, with the Mosaic covenant renewal, came a bunch of additions. We got an addition of the commandments. We got the addition of the Mosaic law. We got the addition of an organized priesthood. We got the addition of a tabernacle. If you don't know, a tabernacle was a, a portable sanctuary, like a tent that they used for 500 years until eventually the nation of Israel got an established temple. And, and we, have you all heard that old joke about people who commit to reading the Bible in a year giving up halfway through Leviticus? Don't do that. Don't do that because it is all so significant all these pieces about the law and building the tabernacle. But these were rules. These were rules on how to stay faithful to the covenant, how to keep the deal that we made with God. And the entirety of the Old Testament, remember, remember those four words, promise, covenant, contract, testament. The Old Testament is all, in its entirety, how God's people repeatedly break the covenant while simultaneously laying claim to the covenant which sets them apart as the people of God. Like, think about a marriage, okay? Which is a covenant. Two parties stand before God and their dearly beloved witnesses, and they make promises to each other in an agreement. Well, the covenant God made is kind of the same, but his is divinely binding. Because unlike human husbands, God continually renews his promise. Every time his people follow other gods or fail to keep their side of the agreement... He marries them over and over and over again. And he does this right up until, spoiler alert, the New Covenant, the New Testament. Right? And the whole thing just speaks of the human condition. right? God's covenant, old and new, and here's another sentence that you can take away. And if you do read the Bible in the whole year, remember this as you go through it. God's covenant, old and new, is a covenant of grace. It's an undeserved gift. So through Jesus, what happens is rather than a repeated contract renewal, rather than all of these things being repetitive and earthly and limited, God gave something complete. He gave us something personal, eternal, once and for all promised fulfillment that doesn't just cover the people of Israel, it covers the whole earth through Jesus Christ's sacrifice. Amen? Okay, see, we're not burying the lead today. So let's look into these symbolisms and contrasts that we see in today's passage. To make the point to the readers, and by association to make the point to us, the author highlights all the symbolism and the contrasts of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And here are some examples, right? The first is how Jesus is a better priest and a better sacrifice, how Jesus is a better tabernacle, and then we will also revisit why his is a better covenant. So human priests, we talk about this a little bit over the past couple weeks, versus Jesus, the great high priest. And the symbolism here is the most obvious. Right? So verse 3 of our passage says this. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest 
talking about Jesus, also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. So there are pieces that make Jesus the same as the Levitical priests, and there are pieces that make him also different and better. Right? It's beautiful and it's purposeful compare and contrast between the old and the new. So, again, lots of context here. One particular tribe in ancient Israel was set apart for the function of the priesthood. It was the tribe of Levi, which is why we call them Levitical priests. And their main role and their main function was to bring and offer sacrifices on behalf of the people for the forgiveness of sins. Now, Jesus was descended from the tribe of Judah. So while he was here on earth and walked on the earth, he was not considered a priest of Israel. That's not only interesting, but it's important. It's really important. If Jesus had been a Levite, it would have been easy to lump him in with the imperfect, insufficient, unsustainable ways of the old sacrificial system they would have considered him a Levitical priest. But the sacrifice Jesus offered fulfilled the same need. But he didn't operate like the Levitical priests. There was no sacrifice that can put us in a better standing and communion with God than that of the sacrifice of his own son. It was and it is sufficient and effectual. Amen? Yeah, not burying the lead. All of that can be said much better, as was highlighted last week. So I want to revisit the end of Hebrews 7 that we hit last week. Just as a reminder, it says this, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a great high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He had no need like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sin and then for those of the people, since he did it once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Amen? Moving on. Verse 5 of our passage today says this, they, referring to the Levitical priests, serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. So the author, again, in his thoroughness, turns to the tabernacle, turns to the temple, turns to the building itself to continue his point that the covenant of which temple was hugely important, was in and of itself a shadowy symbol of the new covenant. To be clear, the tabernacle was designed by God. Do not pass go. We see that clearly in scripture. The tabernacle was designed by God, not by man, and God did it meticulously so. Why? Why was it so important that all of those pieces of the tabernacle were put in place so meticulously? Because the tabernacle is a model of heaven. The 
purpose of the tabernacle, especially that innermost part called the Holy of Holies, right? The purpose of the tabernacle was so that God could be with his people. We see this in Exodus 25. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their mists. Midst. Or in Exodus 29, it says, I will dwell among my people of Israel and I will be their God. The temple was a God-designed, man-made tent that was symbolic of the real dwelling place of God in heaven. Sure, God did dwell in the earthly tabernacle in a sense, but not in a way that we could take the God of the universe and put him in a literal box and carry him around through the desert. But God's real dwelling place is in heaven itself. It's the better temple with Jesus entered when he entered into heaven, right? We think of heaven as this, uh, this paradise that us believers go to when we pass on. But do we often think of it as a currently, as a working temple? Heaven is a working temple right now, right? So let's go back to verse 1 of our passage. It says, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Right? But it gets better. Right, The priests, most of us know, went into the Holy of Holies right? and they sprinkled the blood of animals, sprinkled the blood of an animal sacrifice on the altar and on the ark. The ark of the... Yep. So I think what the author is doing here is, is he's creating this picture of heaven being the actual Holy of Holies and Jesus is there now at the right hand of the Father, sprinkling his own blood in the very presence of the actual throne of God the Father. Because verse 2 says, a minister, referring to Jesus, present tense, a minister in the holy place, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. Right? Jesus' priestly ministry on our behalf is ongoing. Right? We don't think about that very often. We can never approach the throne of mercy without having a high priest there at all times, day and night, appearing before God on our behalf. Right now, in heaven, a working tabernacle. And I would ask you to remember that picture next week when we sing one of my favorite hymns, Oh My Soul Arise, where it's got lyrics that say this, the bleeding sacrifice on my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Jesus stands before the throne, and my name is written on his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His blood atoned for every race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. The Father hears him pray, his dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of his son. His spirit answers to the blood and tells me, I am born of God. What a beautiful picture. And if that's not cool enough, Jesus being at the right hand of the Father was prophesied a thousand years beforehand by King David in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. A prophetic piece that says that the Messiah... The Messiah's tent would be in heaven itself, at God's right hand. And if that isn't cool enough, Jesus' own words indicate that he himself is a better temple. John 2, 
Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show for us doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple in three days and I'll raise it up. And the Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And if that's not cool enough, see the famous passage from John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory of the only Son from the Father, full of truth and grace. I always try to throw in one Greek word to make myself feel smart. But the Greek word here for dwelt is skeono, which means to live or to camp in a tent. So what Jesus is basically saying of himself is that he tabernacled among us. Jesus didn't need to be a Levitical priest and to go into the temple and to the Holy of Holies to make sacrifice, even though he probably had as much right to do so as anybody. But it was not the nature of his priesthood. Right? He knew his priestly ministry was going to be in heaven before the throne of God, not on earth. So remember, the purpose of the tabernacle was that God's people could have relationship with him, that he could be with us. And that same purpose was fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? See, not buried in the lead. Also, there's that, that one little piece to throw in. What do we like to call Jesus around Christmas time? Emmanuel, which means God with us. Moving on to the better covenant. So, if all of that's not enough, the author then backs all of these claims up that the new covenant through the gospel is superior than the old. He quotes a decent portion of the prophet Jeremiah, which was written 600 years beforehand, at a time when the nation of Israel was in a state of shambles. Like they were literally split in half and things were not going well for the nation. And the prophet knew that they needed to be reminded of their need of their covenant. So we can find this passage in Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31, but we'll read it in our passage today. Notice, though, that Jeremiah puts a lot of emphasis on those I will statements. So we move on to verse 8 here. It says, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand and bring them out of the land of Egypt. The point of this that the author is making is that the new covenant replacing the old covenant was always the intention. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenants, not to downplay them, right? They were real and they were true and they were good and they were from God, but they were never meant to be perfect or permanent. Because they couldn't be. Because they were dependent on the obedience of people. And we know how they can be. As it was said earlier, conditions needed to be fulfilled by God's people to keep the covenant. If you obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall experience all of these blessings. The old covenant was provisional. But such is the heart of our God that he pursues even those who wander and flee. He pursued us even to the point of death, even to the point of death on a cross. I 
I, I saw this in a commentary called the Bridgeway Bible Commentary, and I just thought it was too good to not read the entire piece. It says this, the new covenant cannot fail because it depends not on people's obedience to a set of laws, but on God's grace in changing people from within. He gives them inner spiritual life that makes them loyal to him and enables them to do his will. Priests are no longer necessary to mediate between people and God because all believers know God personally. They have a direct fellowship with him because he has taken away their sins. Are you catching the single point here? So let's continue on in the Jeremiah passage here. In verse 10 it says, For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each other his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And what the prophet is prophesying here is definitely something different. By saying the laws will be written on the believer's heart by way of a divine light and that will be changed by the Holy Spirit from the inside. Does that mean that the new covenant in Christ, does it still involve some law keeping? Yes, yes it does. Does God still care about obedience? Of course he does. He hates sin. But the new covenant is made with a new people. Now, let me just clarify that sentence real quick. When I say new people, I don't mean non-Jewish people because the nucleus is still the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It was from there that it expanded out. When I say new people, it's new as in how all of humanity obeys him. We no longer obey him by way of the old covenant. Believers are empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey and know God the way we should on this side of heaven until his promise is fully realized when Christ returns and the church is made pure, right? It says, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. And here's the last part of the prophetic reinforcement from the book of Jeremiah. Verse 12 of our passage today says, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Man, do we love that verse. He'll remember our sins no more. But how is that possible, right? God knows everything. He doesn't, like, erase it out of his ledger. Well, as the writer of Hebrews repeatedly tells us, we have a priest who enables our sins to be fully and finally forgiven. In other words, the forgiveness that Christ has isn't the kind that's going to continually keep bringing back our sin and throwing it in our face. It no longer stands against us. It's deeper than that. God promises to forget our sin, not because he doesn't care about the sin, but because Jesus is enough to cover it. Amen? One of the things that we might think about the Old Covenant and the system of animal sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins was good at was feeling some kind of assurance of our forgiveness based on actions. Right. Michael Kruger says in his book on Hebrews, it says, we tend to like external performance because it's measurable. Boxes can be checked and we can feel good about ourselves. We feel as though we're in control of our own fates. 
That's what our sinful selves want. But I tell you, if you try to draw close to God by way of some external action with no real heart in it, you're going to have a difficult time. All right, for instance, so we've all experienced some kind of anxiety over human interaction and relationships, right? right? And we know that uh, trouble or something between humans in a relationship can't be repaired with something external, right? Buying a box of chocolate or a bouquet of flowers doesn't fix the problem, right? We ask each other, are you okay? And what we mean when we say that is, is there something that needs to be fixed between us? Do you need to ask that of God today? Because if Jesus is not your mediator, and you ask God, are we good? The answer is going to be no. We are not good. We are all born into a sinful world apart from God. God is holy. We are not. And it's not a relationship that we can fix on our own with external actions. Jesus alone can and will fix our relationship with God. And it is a far, far better covenant. Yes? The new covenant isn't predicated on my faithfulness. The new covenant is predicated on God's faithfulness. The new covenant is not predicated on my work. The covenant is predicated upon God's work. And because of that, it stands and it's good and it's real. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says this, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The new condition, right? The old covenant was conditional. The new covenant is conditional. The new condition for the humans on our side is believing in him. Abraham sealed his covenant through his faith. So it kind of feels full circle a little bit, doesn't it? Right? We seal our covenant with our faith and belief and acceptance of Christ's sacrifice. And so some of us here, we have made that covenant. And those people call themselves Christians, right? Or perhaps some here, you haven't made that covenant with God. You can make that covenant with God. After this service in this corner, there's going to be a time for prayer. If you need to make a covenant with God, you don't know how to do that, there will be there people to pray for you. Or if you're here and you have that confidence, if you've made that covenant, if your status with God is good by way of Christ's sacrifice. So there was a a lot of symbolism today, right? Lots of symbolism. And biblical symbolism is perfect and it's ordained by God and it's laid out in scripture for us to understand as a blueprint. And I wouldn't dare nor any should dare to add or create any extra biblical content. But let's afford ourselves here a little 21st century symbolism. The original audience, again, were Jewish people who were considering leaving the Christian church and returning to something they considered more familiar, something safer. And having spent the last 30 plus minutes showing and proving the lengths that God went to be with us, 
and showing the once and for all way that he made by the sacrifice of his son Jesus and the receiving of it through faith alone. As the musicians come up, as the musicians come up, I'm going to drop a bomb and then walk away. That's what I'm going to do. Most sermons will ask a question and then spend the rest of the time answering that question. This whole sermon was the answer. So I'm going to leave you with the question. Do you have a previous covenant that you're tempted to run back to? Right? Is there a place or a thing that where you once found your identity and you think is better than having your identity in Christ and being a child of God under the new covenant? Was it a previous community? Was it a previous lifestyle? Was it a previous faith or a previous worldview? A previous desire? The final verse of this chapter, verse 13, says this. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old, is ready to vanish away. God's old covenant was temporary. Anything this world has to offer that we would be tempted to give our heart to is fleeting. Right? Whether it's something that we're tempted to run back to or something else that we're tempted to run forward to, I promise you, it is already evaporating and ready to vanish away. Verse 10, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Church, why would we turn our back on that? Why would we not make that deal and believe that promise? There's going to be prayer over there after the service. If you need to do business with God and have a, and have a fellow saint pray with you during this time. Yeah, that's it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us over and over and over and over again through your word. Thank you that you've given us your word. You've opened up your word. You have revealed these things to our hearts. And that we can know with surety that it is you alone that gives life and place and meaning. That is you alone where we can find our true identity. And even now as we go into communion to celebrate that truth and we continue to sing praises to you for this very truth, be blessed because we're a thankful people. Have your way in our lives. Have your will in this church. We love you the most. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.